Alrighty, let's do this. <laughs> Hello, Slava Connection listeners. It's Misha. Today, I had the privilege of interviewing Miss Nicole Robinson, who is a senior research associate for the Middle East at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Ms. Robinson's research focuses on the economic and security aspects of the Middle East and North Africa, specifically with focus on the Levant region. Ms. Robinson provided a thorough overview of Russia's relationship with the Middle East, specifically the arms trade, energy issues, and grain exports, as well as the great power competition and the role of region's key players such as Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Iran in the Russia-Ukraine war itself. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Nicole Robinson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Nicole, you're an expert on Middle East, and of course, uh, war in Ukraine has global impacts, not just in Europe or transatlantic relations, but also it has impact on the global South and the Middle East in particular. Could you describe what kind of impact in general and maybe some specific details that uh, Russian-Ukrainian war has on the region? Yeah, so I think it's really it's a really important time for the Middle East region. Uh, the war has really opened up the space for a lot of different Middle East and North African countries to think about their relationships vis-a-vis the West and Russia. When I looked at this question, I was thinking, you know, that the war has really impacted the region in three areas that I want to highlight. Food security in terms of arms and in terms of energy and trade. So just starting with food Ukraine and Russia is not only the breadbasket of Europe, which a lot of people talk about, but it's also the breadbasket of the Middle East. On average, Middle East countries import about 25 to 50 percent of their food. And wheat is a key staple in the Middle East region that most countries heavily import from Russia and Ukraine. The biggest issue around food is that it's really an over-reliance on these imports from Ukraine and Russia. So obviously, when the war broke out, there was a huge concern about how Middle East food markets would be impacted by the conflict. So what happens is because of the overdependence, you know, the supply chain disruptions are really traumatic for MENA countries because what happens is there are just massive increases in price, which historically has led to instability in the region. There are a couple of countries that are being impacted the most. All of the countries are being impacted, but there are three in particular that I want to highlight that are being impacted the most. The first is Egypt imports about 86% of its wheat from Russia and Ukraine. That's a significant portion. It has its own domestic grain production, but it really isn't enough to meet its large population. There's about, you know, 105 million people in in Egypt. Right now, what the Egyptian government has done is initially it placed export bans on its own domestic productions, which is actually not helpful for the global market because it takes away supply and it inevitably raises prices for everyone. Now, that was that export ban was only there for around six-ish months. They've since lifted that export ban. And to fill that gap between domestic supply and the supply provided by Russia and Ukraine, the country is has its own strategic grain reserves, but that's only going to last until about February 2023. So Egypt could be facing really a massive food crisis in the next year if something isn't done. In the short term, the World Bank and U.S. has provided relief through aid, and the Gulf has also provided relief in, in a larger sense. But that's just really a short-term solution to a larger problem. Middle East food markets are not very sustainable for a couple of reasons. One is that they have a huge problem in terms of subsidies. Most countries subsidize their wheat for the domestic uh, population. 
And what happens is the subsidies have the cost to continue subsidies has just gotten way too high for these governments to cover. So that's really a long-term problem. Another is a, in Egypt in particular, there is a water and land problem. So you have a lot of, you know, in addition to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its impact on food markets, it really exacerbates existing problems in a lot of these countries. In Egypt, they're dealing with a water crisis that is right now in sort of exacerbated by discussions around the Nile River, which provides a majority of the water. They're having issues with what's been called the Nile River Dam crisis between negotiating what the water agreement will look like with Sudan, Ethiopia, and Egypt. So their water supply could be significantly cut, which will impact its own domestic production. So that's Egypt in in a snapshot. And I look at that country as one of two that are the most vulnerable to a food crisis next year. The other country is Lebanon. Lebanon, if you've been following it closely or not closely, is a country that is either close to collapse or already collapsed, however you define that term. Food prices in Lebanon have increased 30% this year alone in Lebanon, and more than 1,500% since Lebanon's crisis erupted in 2019. The country is on decline. More than half of all Lebanese need humanitarian assistance. And the biggest issue is the capacity issue for Lebanon. Lebanon only has enough capacity to store one month's supply of wheat and two months of livestock feed. And the reason for that is in 2020, there was a huge explosion in the Beirut port. And in the Beirut port, there are a lot of grain silos. A lot of those grain silos were destroyed. So, you know, all of these issues compounded with the fact that there is no functioning government in Lebanon for over the past 20 months. I mean, it's just a huge issue that this government is not going to address. And these issues are just compounded over time. The last country that you wouldn't necessarily think about is Iraq. Similar to Lebanon, it's going through its own political crisis. You know, you have a government that was just formed that need to address a number of issues. They also have a water issue as well. They're not as impacted as as Egypt and Lebanon because Iraq does have partnerships with the United States to feed its own food supplies. So it doesn't have as much of an issue as these two countries. But that's just, you know, in terms of food, that is what I'm looking at. Egypt and Lebanon are the two countries that are going to be impacted. Another area is arms. Now, Russia is the world's second largest supplier of arms behind the United States in the Middle East. And, you know, Middle East and North African markets are very lucrative markets for Russia, which is why, you know, in the past, Putin in Russia has really made it a priority to increase arms sales to Middle East countries. Russia, as opposed to China, for example, has a pretty good market for advanced arms when it comes to combat aircraft, armored vehicles, tactical missile systems and air defense systems. They do a pretty good job. They're pretty effective. And the issue is if we don't know what the timeline is for the war with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we don't know when that's going to end. But inevitably, it's going to have a long term impact on Russia's arm industry. You know, buyers of Russian Russian arms will likely face supply shortages for a number of reasons. One is that Russia will will need to meet its own needs of its own military and build up its own capacity in the future. So the domestic manufacturers will be focused on that. Another is Western sanctions. I mean, Western sanctions play a huge part in the ability of some countries to buy weapons from Russia. And so if those continue, it's difficult to say if Russia will be able to access its markets in Middle East and the Middle East. Another, which is something that people don't think about, is export controls. There, you know, Russia's arms market depends on a number of different aircraft components and technologies provided by other countries. And so without knowing, 
you know, what, where that is going to go, where the market's going to be impacted. It's difficult to say if Russia will be even able to provide weapons and air defense systems to other Middle East markets. So well, how does this impact the Middle East? First, you know, the Middle East will need to re- reconsider its long-term relationships with a lot of Russian arm industries. The three countries that import the most arms from Russia are Egypt, Iraq, and Algeria. I'm going to focus on Egypt because it has been a conversation point. The country is really going to be impacted by this out of all all the countries in the Middle East. Russia supplies 41% of Egyptian arms. And in the past years, you know, President Sisi of Egypt and Putin have, their ties have really improved over the years. Russia is also building Egypt's first nuclear power plant and is providing a bunch of loan money to fund this project. Now, this puts Egypt in a little bit of a bind. They, they are facing U.S. pressure to choose sides, and Egypt, for the most part, has remained, tried to remain relatively neutral. But they are, you know, dependent on Russian arms for now. And, the, and in the short term, there's an immediate concern that they'll be able, that Russia will be able to ensure maintenance and source replacement parts for Egypt. In the long term, I would, if I were Egypt, I would be rethinking my partnership with Russia and trying to find alternative arms suppliers because it doesn't look like Russia is going to be able to deliver. Iraq's a similar case, but they have to balance relations with the United States and they have alternative suppliers with the United States and other European countries. Algeria is an interesting case. The country is pretty closed off. It has been for years, but Russia supplies close to 81% of their arms, combat aircraft systems, armored vehicles, radar systems and missiles. And so this strong relationship, I would think for Algeria might change in the future. You may see Algeria start to reach out to other Europeans to supply its um, arms in the future. And it's difficult to say now, but we won't really know until, you know, until the future. Last is energy. Russia is, you know, one of the largest exporters of oil in the world. And many many countries are heavily impacted by increasing prices and decreased availability of Russian oil. You know, you might have seen last week that OPEC Plus came out with a decision to cut production, and that's going to have a massive impact on the supply of the market, which is inevitably going to drive up prices And the countries that are going to be most impacted are the ones that import the most energy. One is Lebanon, which I've already mentioned. And there's a key theme. Lebanon and Egypt are going to be impacted immensely by this war. Lebanon imports over 90% of their energy from out of country. Russia supplies a large majority of that. Now, what's interesting is there was a maritime deal that was reached last week between Israel and Lebanon about possible about the maritime boundary with possible energy resources. But right now, the if you look at the deal itself, Lebanon was given um, control over one of the reserves. It's called Kana Reserve, and there, it's not really been explored yet. And so there's a worry that there's not going to be enough gas to sufficiently explore these areas. And even if gas is found, I mean, the, the country is immensely corrupt. The money will likely be stolen. There's no guarantee that it's going to help Lebanon in the long term and their domestic needs. So that's really a, a snapshot of the three areas, right? First is food and food security. The second is arms. And the third is energy. Thank you very much for that summary, Nicole. I wanted to ask you about a kind of expand on one of the issues that you've touched on, the grain exports. Could some of those countries that are dependent specifically on Ukraine diversify to other suppliers, uh, including Russia itself? And how is this war changing the perception of Ukraine and the region? Does Ukraine even have any soft power or appeal in the region? Because uh, some people claim that Ukraine-Russia war is a colonial war at its core. And is this narrative at all prevalent in the Middle East, which was, of course, colonized by Western powers in previous centuries? 
So I'm going to address your first question on alternative suppliers. One of the exciting things for the United States and other Middle East countries is the Abraham Accords, which was an accord that was signed under the Trump administration that was signed between Israel, Bahrain, UAE to normalize relations. And this is a huge opportunity for a lot of these countries to not only develop close defense ties, but also look at strengthening economic ties. I did see reports a couple of months ago saying that Israel was looking to use the Abraham Accords to find alternative suppliers with India. India is a huge food supplier in the world. And there was the discussions of this sort of Israel-UAE-India corridor, food corridor. I haven't seen much news since then, but that's an interesting concept because India could be a huge beneficial supplier for the region, maybe not covering the entire region in certain areas, but at least being you know, a stopgap when we're looking towards the short term. In the long term, I mean, yeah, many Middle East countries are going to have to find alternative grain suppliers or focus on supplying their own domestic needs, strengthening the reserves, looking at alternative energy or possibilities for developing their own domestic production. So it's really, you know, it's an issue that I think existed before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it's really going to have a long-term impact in how these countries look at their domestic food supply and how they strengthen sustainability and and how they decrease dependence on a lot of these countries. Now, looking at your second question, I think you asked about Ukrainian soft power appeal in the region. So generally, I would say Ukraine doesn't really have any soft power in the region beyond its wheat exports, but it shares you know, the wheat exports with Russia. But if anything, I think that the responses of each country in the region and the Middle East to the Russian invasion of Ukraine comes from its complicated relationship sort of straddling the West and Russia. So if anything, Ukraine has soft power influence via the United States and the West. So what that means is that, you know, in the Middle East, if we look at the initial responses of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you're going to see some patterns. I'm going to explain. There have been really three different responses. The only country that has advocately openly supported Russia initially was Syria. And that's pretty obvious when you look at Syria's bilateral relationship with Russia. Russia, in by all accounts, is the reason why the Assad regime in Syria is still there. You know, during the Syrian civil war, Russia provided immense amount of air support and military support, combat support to Russia, and they have a really close relationship still. So it makes sense, right? Syria would obviously side with Russia. Now, a country that was initially neutral in the beginning, but looks like it's shifting is Iran. You know, you might have seen reports in the last couple of days of Iran supplying drone and surface-to-surface air missiles. That is a shift from the beginning. Iran had mostly remained on the sidelines, pretty neutral. They didn't really say much. Now, their proxies, on the other hand, in places like Yemen and Lebanon, were following the same logic and lines of Syria, saying, you know, the narrative that, you know, the West and NATO started this war and Russia is just protecting its territorial integrity and existing policies, you know, those sorts of lines of thinking. So that's really an interesting shift. So Syria and Iran and then its proxies across the region are, you know, openly supporting Russia at this point. Now you have another category of countries that are what I like to call strictly neutral. And what they say, they're the, the statements that come out of a lot of these countries is, you know, we're concerned about the situation going on in Ukraine. But we urge diplomacy and de-escalation from both sides and a political solution to the conflict. That's been a common, I mean, most countries in the Middle East have taken that line of rhetoric, you know, from the beginning. And there's a really a couple of reasons for that. And, you know, neutrality, if you look at neutrality, it can get quite complicated. I would say they all, a lot of Middle East countries use that line of thinking that they're concerned, what I just said, but the reasons are different. 
One is, you know, if you look at a place like Oman, Oman's historically maintained a low profile. I like to call them the Switzerland of the Middle East. So, you know, they're going to stay out of it. They're going to remain neutral, make statements, utilize both sides. Another area that's complicated is that a lot of countries, a few countries in the region are not really able to pick a side because they have key interests with both Russia and the West. A good example of that is Jordan. Now, the Syrian civil war had a massive impact on Jordan. Russia, after, you know, President Assad, this is around the 2018, um, 2019 period, Russia started to retake territories back in the south in Syria. They filled those vacuums with combat troops and Russian security support. So Russia had been a huge stabilizer in southern Syria, and it has been a huge stabilizer in southern Syria. Now, the biggest worry for the Jordanians is in the beginning of the war was if Russia needed to redeploy their assets in southern Syria, what impact would that have on the ground along their northern border? Iran's been very active in southern Syria. So the worry was and the fear was if Russia decided to redeploy their assets away from Syria, Iran would fill the vacuum. And that's a huge problem for Jordan. So they've had to sort of balance their really strong bilateral relationship with the United States, who has provided the most bilateral aid of any country in the world. I mean, Jordan receives the most aid from the United States out of any other country, right? So they've had to balance both of those issues. And so the statements have been pretty neutral. And they have to kind of play both sides for that matter. Another area is a place like Bahrain, and there's an economic reason. Bahrain has strong ties in terms of trade and various investments with both Russia and the United States. So they have to kind of remain neutral. They want to benefit from both sides. The last area is oil. Saudi Arabia is a really interesting case because for the most part, the country has legitimately tried to play both sides. Um, they've taken calls. The the, the leader, um, Mohammed bin Salman, has taken calls from both the foreign minister in Russia and the secretary of state in the United States. And it makes sense, right? Saudi Arabia has an historic relationship with the United States, but it also works with Russia in terms of OPEC+. Plus. So they have to kind of manage both of those interests. The last categorization is what I like to call hedging or balancing. I know this is an international relations term, but it really does encompass the strategy of a few countries. Now, the public statements are neutral, but they do engage with Russia and China. So, you know, most countries in the region, the rest of the countries tend to take that viewpoint. The UAE is really interesting. It doesn't get talked about a lot. It's a small country, but I would say it tries to think of itself as a competitor to Saudi Arabia. So in phone calls that they've released with the um, MBZ or Mohammed bin Zayed and the foreign minister, they've been saying, you know, we have a great friendship with Russia and relationship with Russia. And, you know, we just want to strengthen that. At the same time, they're not admitting or saying that they approve of the annexation of Ukrainian territories. Just to think about it, how these countries, at least in the Gulf, think of their relationships vis-a-vis the West and Russia has to do a lot with Gulf competition. They're all looking at each other to see how the UAE is looking at Qatar and seeing how they respond. Uh, Saudi Arabia is looking at the UAE and seeing how they respond. They all want to compete with each other to be the country and the voice in the Persian Gulf area and region. So that's just something to think about. And I wanted to ask you about the role of Saudi Arabia in this conflict because uh, it has been kind of this dual-faced because, as you mentioned, they've agreed together with OPEC Plus to decrease oil production, which will drive up oil prices and and indirectly benefit the Russian economy. But at the same time, the Saudis have been very active at liberating Ukrainian captives from Russia 
not only Ukrainian captives, but also international citizens and Ukrainian officials have ex- expressed deep respect for, for the Saudi efforts uh, to do that. And that happened right on the eve of annexation of the four Ukrainian regions into Russian Federation. Also, do you think that the Saudis will want to potentially take their intra-region rivalry with Iran over to Ukraine and somehow support Ukraine more, potentially with arms? Because, uh, as you've mentioned, Iran has uh, really stepped up uh, with uh, the supply of UAVs and potentially surface-to-surface missiles to Russia. What are your ideas about that? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, and you made a comment about, you know, Saudi Arabia's role in this conflict is super interesting. And it's interesting for a number of reasons. When we look at the kingdom's response and how it either, you know, changes the way they think about their relationships with Russia versus the United States. Overall, and this is an important factor that gets mentioned a couple of times, but I think it's really important to emphasize the Saudi-U.S. relationship doesn't seem to be at a good point. This administration has been hypercritical of Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi regime in terms of their interventions in the Yemen war, um, has called, you know, MBS a pariah and Saudi Arabia a pariah state. And then at the same time, OPEC plus this deal is really interesting because the administration for the longest time had been asking the Saudis back and forth and, you know, increase, decrease, increase production, right, based on oil prices. And the Saudis haven't really been as amicable to doing that. And if you look at public statements or if you look at interviews by different leaders or different Saudis on news, there is this attitude that why do you why does the United States think they can tell us what to do? You know, we're a sovereign nation or a world power. We have oil. We're going to do what we can for our best interest. And I think that's why you're seeing this reaction of Saudi Arabia, right? It's interesting that they didn't go completely strictly neutral, right? They didn't just come out with the statement, no, we're concerned, but we're going to stay out of it, right? No, they've been, again, playing both sides. They've taken calls from both. And it does seem that Saudi Arabia does want to be a mediator. They've offered it on multiple occasions saying, you know, we'll we'll mediate this conflict. If Russia and Ukraine want to come to the table and discuss what a political set- settlement looks like, we can mediate. And it's, I think it's really indicative of Saudi's vision wanting to be a big leader on a world stage. The crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, has is a very ambitious man. He looks like he wants to be the leader. He wants to be a, a major voice. And so this is a really, in Saudi's point of view, this is a great opportunity for them to demonstrate their ability to get what they want from both. And I think it's really just almost a it's a message to the United States as, you know, look, we can, we don't need you to advance our own national interest. And if you want to maintain relations with us and if you want us to help you, don't put pressure on us to choose sides. We're not going to choose sides at the end of the day. And I think that statement was actually explicitly clear from one of the Saudi royals. I saw a video a couple of weeks ago saying something along those lines. So how does that relate to Saudi's actions? One you mentioned was this prisoner exchange that happened in late September. It was actually interesting for the timing because it was right after Putin's announcement for a partial troop mobilization into Ukraine. I, I'd read that this these discussions were ongoing for months, but interesting timing nonetheless. It was pretty significant, actually, 300 prisoners total. Saudi Arabia wasn't the only country that mediated. Turkey also had a role in there. Uh, And it does make sense. Again, what I just said, you know, the mediation involved Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who has maintained close ties with Putin and he's tried to balance both. And he wants to be a world leader that's taken seriously. So this makes sense. He would try to insert himself in any sort of mediation effort. 
I wanted to turn to Israel, the only non-Muslim country in the region and the most westernized by many standards. And I wanted to ask you sort of in, in the connection with the previous question about Saudi Arabia and its role in the Ukraine-Russia war, how do you envision further development of Israel's role in the war? On October 20th, Ukrainian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Mitro Kuleba, had a phone call with Prime Minister of Israel, Yair Lapid, uh, where despite Minister Kuleba urging Mr. Lapid uh, to counter Iran's military aid to Russia, his, his efforts were largely fruitless. And Israel doesn't seem to want to get bogged down in this war or supply Ukraine with the Iron Dome or some other types of air defense systems despite its almost blood rivalry with Iran and the region itself, uh, but it doesn't want to get into this spiral of escalation in Ukraine itself. How do you see Israel's role expanding, or perhaps it's going to stay the same? Right. Israel is quite interesting when you look at it. And I think that actually their response has been somewhat conflicted if you look at, and it's really reflective of the domestic tensions going on in the country right now. So initially in the beginning, Israel seemed to be pretty neutral. They stayed out of it, you know, made the same response, you know, we're concerned, but we we urge diplomatic solution, you know, et cetera. But if you look at the statements between two of the main leaders at the time, you know, Lapid, who was the foreign minister, and then Naftali Bennett, who at the time was prime minister, they actually had different statements. Lapid's, you know, was very strong and said, this is a grave violation of international order. We as Israel need to do something about this. Bennett, was pretty neutral. He said, you know, we are, you know, we're showing solidarity for the Ukrainian civilians, but he didn't mention anything about the territorial integrity of Ukraine or it didn't condemn Russia in any means. I think it really goes to show, as I mentioned, just the domestic tensions, you know, Israel in and of itself domestically at the time when these two leaders were part of the coalition, it was a very um, strained coalition and actually broke down and Israel is supposed to have elections in two weeks, November 1st. So it really, I guess, highlighted just the domestic tensions and the differences between these two leaders and their thinkings, not only domestically, but internationally. Now, there might be a reason for that, I think, from Bennett's point of view. Similar to Jordan, Israel does depend on Russia's support in Syria. Russia has a significant amount of air defense systems in Syria. And in order for Israel to conduct airstrikes, it has to receive approval so that its planes don't get shot down by Russian air defense systems. So they've had to coordinate with Russia to make sure that's the case. Now, I'm going to mention this once, but it's really important to think about. And I mentioned this before. Now, if Russia redeploys its assets out of Syria into Ukraine, that can massively change the calculus of not only Jordan, but also Israel. And I think it was the Washington Post came out with an article two days ago saying that according to two American officials and then an Israeli official, anonymous, of course, that Russia had not only redeployed two battalions, so it's around you know 1,600 troops out of Syria to go to Ukraine. It also redeployed air defense systems. Now, they didn't say how many, but that's interesting because if that's true and Russia does decide to pull back its active support in Syria and its on-the-ground presence, that could massively change not only Jordan's calculus, but also Israel's calculus. Israel will no longer have to work with Russia in Syria and can you know conduct their airstrikes as they want. Now, there's a couple of factors that I think might change Israel's calculus from neutrality to support. There's three or four factors. One is that Russia's foreign minister in the last couple of weeks has directed a lot of anti-Semitic comments directed at Israel and then also just about, you know, the Jewish people writ large. I think he made a comment that 
Hitler had Jewish blood or something like that. And then the other comment was, you know, Israel supporting the Nazis in Ukraine, which is actually laughable when you think about it. But these two comments were not well received, obviously, by, you know, those in power in Israel. And so, you know, that could change the calculus a bit. Again, I mentioned this before, Israel has elections November 1st. And so it's difficult to see until we see the outcome of those elections, who's going to come out as leader, you know, that could change the calculus of Israel moving forward and their support. Right now, I mean, Israel's domestic political scene is kind of a mess. This election is, I think, like their seventh or eighth election in the past two years. They've had so many elections. And the reason for that is that it's just really the domestic scene is really fragmented and there doesn't seem to be support for like one side or the other. So any coalition that's formed, I think we have to kind of wait and see what happens after those elections and wait for the government to be formed because that takes time too. As you mentioned, Moscow's deepening ties with Tehran, which is Israel's sworn enemy. So there's probably pressure growing on Israel to back Ukraine based on Iran's presence looks like the ties have been really deepened with these drones and surface air missiles and things like that. So those are, you know, the three things that I think may possibly change Israel's support of Ukraine in the future. And I wanted to turn shortly to Russia's role in the region, specifically in regards to its campaign in Syria. Do you think that Russia's military has kind of prepared itself for the conflict in Ukraine by testing a lot of its weapons, air force, and just in general, the cohesion of its units by fighting a limited war in Syria because the war in Ukraine was also envisioned as a limited campaign? And in what specific ways did the war in Syria, the active phase of war, have any impact on war in Ukraine? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that was really top of line in the beginning. You know, how would Russia's military experience in Syria play out into Ukraine? And we actually have seen a lot there. So I I think of this in three areas. I think Russia's campaign in Syria did prepare it for its war in Ukraine in terms of psychological confidence that it could wage a war. Logistically and capability-wise, yes. Tactically, no. And I'm going to get into that a bit later. So psychologically, I think, you know, Russia's relative success in Syria gave them the confidence that it could win in Ukraine. In the beginning, Russian military leaders and combat troops, most of them initially came from Syria because they were battle-tested. And that really, I think, was a requirement in the early days to have battle-tested commanders sent to fight in Ukraine. Now, a lot of them were killed. So it's, it's going to be difficult to see what, what happens. But I think, yeah, psychologically, it did prepare. Russia had the arrogance thinking that, you know, this is going to be the same. We can use the lessons learned and our successes in Syria and bolster that and, you know, bolster our confidence to fight in Ukraine. Logistically, it did have an impact. Russia has access to the Mediterranean with two bases in Syria. There's a naval base in, in a place called Tatus, and then there's an air base near Latakia. It's called, I can never pronounce it. It's, it's a base in Latakia, air base in Latakia. And so the naval base in particular does give Russia access to the Mediterranean, and it can use it to send ships via the Black Sea to avoid Turkey and the Bosphorus Strait. So there have been reports that, you know, amphibious vehicles and, and things have been sent to, to Syria for repairs and, and refueling and things like that. So it is useful for Russia in terms of logistics because it gives them their only access to the Mediterranean that they otherwise wouldn't have. Another thing is Syria, because it's basically indebted to Russia with the regime support that was given by Russia. There have been reports in the beginning that Syrian mercenaries were sent to Ukraine. I did see videos on Twitter in the early days with, you know, fighters in Ukraine speaking Arabic, talking about how they were fighting in Syria. And so 
it makes sense that Russia would ask Syria to supply combat troops. Now, they're probably not that effective, but they are bodies and that works on on Russia's strategy. Tactically, I think no. And the reason why I don't think Russia's campaign in Syria prepared it's for its campaign in Ukraine is because tactically Ukraine is so different from Syria. Syria is not Ukraine, right? Syria during Russia's war in Syria, it had air superiority. The population was divided. It could control where it wanted to target certain areas. And you didn't have a populace that was united or trained or had the equipment it needed to fight and wage war against Russia. So it was an enemy that was relatively easy for Russia to control. Ukraine's not that way. I mean, Ukraine has a professional military that in a country that was united around a cause and had training and weapons supplied by the West, right? And still does. And so it's just, it's a really different battlefield. And I think that for Russia, that was a hard lesson that hopefully they've learned. I mean, you can't, in any war fighting and, and battlefield theaters, you can't assume that one place is going to be same the same than the other, right? And so I think that was really a hard lesson there. So yeah, tactically, I think it gave them the confidence they thought that they had, but it tactically didn't do anything. And we see a lot of the same tactics actually from Syria into Ukraine. One is these massive air bombing campaigns, wiping out cities. I mean, that's, you know, the same playbook that Russia used in Syria. And it's not really that effective. <laughs> At least it hasn't been that effective in Ukraine. And so that's just a, a testament, I think, to the the will and the strength of the Ukrainian military that just Syria didn't have. Yes, I totally agree with your assessment, Nicole. And to wrap up our wonderful conversation, I wanted to ask you about this general question, what is happening and where do you see Russia's influence going in the Middle East region, in North Africa, and how does this impact the larger great power competition in the region? Yeah, so I think historically, I want to just start with the history bit, because I think it does inform the way that Russia had influence in the Middle East prior to the war. You know, the Soviet Union was successful during the Cold War in forging bilateral relationships with many countries in the Middle East. And you do actually see similar responses, which is quite funny from a lot of these countries now that you did during Cold War times. Neutrality was the name of the game, right? And so you're seeing that now, which is quite funny um, and a little bit of a repeat of history, I guess. But relationships now between Moscow and other Middle East countries is really mostly based on energy and arms sales. And if Russia can't provide on its arms sales and oil is within a international framework through OPEC plus, so it, you know, it's not attributed only to Russia. I think it really is going to have a long-term impact on Russia's ability to influence the region. And, you know, who knows how long this war is going to last and can't really predict, I guess, the long term impact on Russia's economy and the political system. But it, it makes sense that the focus will be inward whenever the war ends. Russia's going to have to Putin's going to have to, you know, legitimize his actions in Ukraine to his people. And so all of the focus is going to be inward, I think, moving forward. I think another question I think to ask, too, is, you know, how will Russia's declining influence allow other actors to increase their influence. China is an area where that could be the case. China might use Russia's decline to strengthen their own growing influence right in the Middle East region. In the past years, China has actually been really strengthening its relationships with many Middle East countries, especially in the Persian Gulf. China is one of the biggest recipients of oil and natural gas. I mean, and it's heavily, heavily dependent on oil and natural gas from the Persian Gulf. It's also looking at the Middle East and North Africa as a potential for its Belt and Road Initiative and in terms of increasing trade. Lastly, which is quite interesting, is it's growing, is China's growing arms manufacturing industry. You know, if Russia's industry is not able to provide or it 
decides, you know, we're going to focus on restoring our own capabilities domestically. It could give China an opportunity to forge relationships and increase arms sales. The one caveat to that is that China in the past has not really been a preferred partner in terms of arms sales for a number of reasons. One is that its weapons really haven't been battle tested. Russia's has in uh, in Syria. And so there is a lack of trust that A, they're effective and, and, you know, and B, China's able to provide things in the future and the capability there. Another is that their advanced arm capabilities in terms of combat aircraft, vehicles, which is what really the, these Middle East countries want, it doesn't do very well and it's, it's not on par with Russia and the United States. Now, again, if we think about great power competition sort of to end, I think that it's really interesting. I mean, I think that Russia's war on Ukraine has opened the Pandora's box for a lot of these countries to think about the future of their relationships with different great powers. Russia arguably is probably going to decline as a great power, at least psychologically. And China and the United States are, that's where the competition's going to go, right? So as these countries sort of reevaluate their relationships with both Russia, China, and the United States, it's going to be interesting, I think, moving forward and seeing which countries go where. The United States in and of itself is a huge security guarantor for not only the Persian Gulf, but a lot of countries in the Middle East. But there has been worries from a lot of U.S. partners in the region. And I've had conversations with folks that the U.S. is disengaging, that it's pulling back and it's focusing on China. And that's honestly a mistake, because if you look at the Middle East, it is literally the center between different great powers, both in terms of the geography and in terms of the opportunity and the trade routes and the access to different ports and and, and things like that. So it's I think that it would be a mistake for the United States to not take advantage of the opportunity that this that this event has presented to not only strengthen the relationships with current bilateral partners, but also reach out to others that maybe have to reevaluate. Egypt is a good example of that, right? They prefer United States arms and arms manufacturing from the United States. The problem is, is we have, which is a good and bad thing, right? Good thing is that we have a lot of oversight in terms of our arms industry in the United States. Congress has to approve. Um, there's a huge rigorous process there. Questions are asked, which is good, right? We want transparency for the American people. But for a lot of countries that don't really want questions to be asked, they prefer to go to a country that doesn't ask any questions. China's a good example of that. Russia's historically been an example of that. So yeah, that's just some of the things to think about moving forward. I I think it's really a timely discussion and you know, it's 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 difficult to sort of predict what the future is going to look like, but I do think that the event has shifted the way that not only great power competition looks like moving forward, but also how each of these countries think about their bilateral relationships. Thank you very much, Nicole. I appreciate you taking the time to describe the nuts and bolts of Russian-Ukraine war's impact on the Middle East and vice versa, as well as the regional dynamics. It has been really a fascinating discussion. Fascinating for me, too. I mean, I've had a lot of these meetings with folks who have brought up these different issues, and I guess thinking about the connections and you know how different things relate to each other, it's a great exercise on my brain. So <laughs> I appreciate it. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. 
The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. Austin has a great Arabic flagship program. It's, it's, I, I adore the school. I, I really liked it and I love Texas. Um, and my, uh, the heritage president actually is a huge UT Austin person. I think he's a graduate. So he was thrilled when he heard I was going on a podcast for UT Austin. <laughs> Thank you guys. 